Father, may we, with our lives and not just our words, live that truth that our lives are to be built on you, on your love, as your children. So as we listen to the words of Jesus today, may we hear that message. May we see and receive him pointing us to our safe place, to our identity as your kids. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're continuing in Matthew 5 today, where Jesus says this. You have heard that it was said of the, the, to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Uh, not the softest words that Jesus ever speaks. Um, I appreciate Jeff stepping in and preaching for me last week on short notice. I've had a pretty rough cough, and I'm mostly done with it, but this is going to be the most I've talked in over a week. So if I fall into a coughing fit, we'll just assume that that's all we needed to hear tonight <clears throat> and move on. Uh, before I get into this particular text, I want to back up a couple of weeks uh, to the first couple of verses that Scott taught that Sunday which is, which is what Jesus says immediately before he goes into this passage about murder and anger. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. I want to read this. I wanted us to read this again before we go into this particular passage on anger, because as Scott mentioned, what Jesus does after he says this, after he, after he says to the people, I'm not coming to negate the law. I'm, I'm here to fulfill the law, to bring it to its fullness. Uh, after he does this, he's going to illustrate what he means by that with several specific examples moving forward. This one with anger is the first. But if you kind of track through the next several, the next part of the passage, he's going to do this in a few different ways. He's going to use specific parts of our lives to illustrate, this is what I mean when I say, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. He's going to bring the law back into their sight, and he is going to ask them, hold your, hold your life up to what the law is saying and what the law is intending to do um, as he moves forward. So the point here uh, in doing that is not ultimately to take them back into a, a legalistic way of living. He's not asking them to keep score. How do you measure up to the law? And that's the end of the conversation. He is asking them to measure themselves against the law in a certain sense. What he's going to point them to is a different way of living as a result of what they find in the law and in their lives. So he's trying to remind us 
that what the law was always doing was revealing what it means to be fully human. It was always God pointing his people back into the life that they were made to live, um, to the created design, to their created design. They were made in the, we were made, they were made in the image of God. And God's work in the world has always been to uphold and to restore his image in his people. That's what was happening in the law, and that's what's going to be happening in Jesus moving forward. The law showed people truth. Um, it showed them the true way to live. And we talk, after Scott talked, I don't remember if he uh, asked for questions or if Jen Kilzer just volunteered to ask a question. Um, but there's, there's this confusion that comes for us often when you hear, us talk, when you hear somebody talk about the law in that way and say, um, the, the purpose of the law was to show us how to live. It gets confusing when you start looking at the law and it says things like don't eat shrimp and all kinds of other crazy things. What am I supposed to do with that? And my very short oversimplified answer to that is there's always a good reason to ask, what is God doing with that law? The point in some cases is not the law itself. The point is, what is he trying to do? So in the case of the Old Testament, he's trying to, in a very distinct way, set his people apart in the world. And that meant living a different way that at times didn't make sense. That doesn't explain all of Old Testament law. The point is the law was always intended to reveal who we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to live, even in the spaces that it doesn't make sense to us. It's always showing us the truth about who God is and how he wants us to live. And Jesus says, that hasn't changed. I haven't come to alter the truth. I've come to fulfill the truth. I've come to show you what it looks like in its fullness in a human being so that you can then receive that kind of life. So the shift that he makes, he does make a shift as he comes onto the scene. And then certainly through his death and his resurrection, something shifts, but it's not a change to the truth. It's a change to our, our way of living by the truth. How are we supposed to live according to the truth? He's going to redirect our eyes. He's going to redirect our minds, our hearts, and our behavior out of a law-driven righteousness, uh, a way of being reconciled with the truth, of being the kind of humans that God made us to be by trying our very best to measure up to the law. He's going to direct us out of that into a grace-driven righteousness. We're still called to righteousness. We're still called to right living, to living the way God made us to live. But now it's going that, that, that living is going to be shaped and powered by grace. It will still reconcile. When, when grace comes in, it still reconciles us to the same God and the same truth that the law was reconciling people to. It will still shape us into the same kind of humans that God made us to be. It's just going to do that in a different way than the law did. So as Jesus does this with specifics, like with anger, which we're going to look at in just a moment, remember that the specific examples he gives here aren't given in a vacuum. They're given in the broader context of the Sermon on the Mount and in the broader context of Jesus' life and teaching. So the Sermon on the Mount here is going to reveal a way to think about being restored to the image of God that is compelled by grace. When we get toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter seven, there's a passage where Jesus kind of refers back to everything that he's taught up to that point. And the message, uh, paraphrase of the, of the scriptures, Jesus describes what he has done in 
the Sermon on the Mount as these aren't incidental, I don't remember the exact phrasing of this part, but these aren't just incidental teachings. And what he says is these are words to build a life on. He is establishing through the sermon, the full context of the sermon, how we're supposed to live, how we're supposed to build our lives. And so this sermon reveals a way that we think about being restored to that image of God through grace. And then the whole of Jesus, the whole of who he is and what he will do in his death and resurrection will provide to us the means and the power for God to shape us into that image through grace. So the truth doesn't change. The purpose has always been the same, restoring humanity to what the, the, the big word is, imago Dei, the image of God, bringing that back to life in us after it's been broken. And the image of God doesn't change with Jesus. It's important to know that. The image of God is no different with Jesus. Uh, the image of God that has been revealed through the law and prophets, Jesus says, is now fulfilled in Jesus. God has become a man the kind of human that he intends for us to be. So as that happens, Jesus brings into human flesh the fullness of God's truth. He's the walking, talking embodiment of God's purpose for humanity. He's showing us who we were made to be. So while there's plenty about the law that's hard to understand, we can't say Jesus has negated the law. He has brought it all together in one person. So the truth is the same, but now we have grace is the summary of that. We're not being pushed into the image of God by conformity to the law, by our own work. We're being compelled into that image by the kindness of God, which the scriptures later tell us is what really leads us to repentance, that kindness, that grace. So when we look at anger in this passage, there we go. Verse 21, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said to those of, uh, those of ancient times, you shouldn't murder and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you're angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. I remember as a kid, we used to try to bait people into calling each other fools so we could say, you're going to hell. <clears throat> That's what the Bible says. Jesus said it. So the first thing Jesus does here, that's silly, but the first thing Jesus does here uh, is he seems to make the law even heavier in a way, right? He, you previously understood God's rule to be don't murder anyone, which most sane people will agree is a good rule. It's a good thing for, for humans to abide by. But you, that's what you previously understand, understood God to be saying, Uh, Don't murder anyone because there's a judgment that will come upon you if you do. But Jesus says, I'm saying, even if you're carrying anger toward other people, you're subject to judgment in the same kind of way. And that seems heavy. That sounds like more law, like a more difficult law to try to conform to. But what he's doing is he's revealing the purpose of that original law all along. The purpose of the law against murder wasn't just to protect people from being killed. It did that, hopefully, and that's a good thing. And it wasn't just to punish killers. It was to reveal to us the truth about how we're supposed to view other humans. So when the law said, don't kill another human, it was intended to uh, invoke in us that sense of seeing in another human Someone created in the image of God and holding that sacred and understanding it's not my place ever to put an end to that. 
That was the purpose of the law. So God's purpose for his people all along in the law and now through Jesus is to see others, to see in others his image and his goodness and to respond in love. So the law that said don't murder was intended to help you live into that space of seeing God's image in other people and valuing it the way God values it. So I'm saying, even if you have in your heart the kind of anger that keeps you from seeing that person as God sees them, you're in the same space. They may not die as a result of your anger. You may not go to jail for that part of your anger. But you have missed God's intended purpose for you in the same way that someone commits murder has. So murder, in a way, um, separate this conversation for, for a moment from a conversation about ethics. I would say ethically murder is its own kind of bad, okay? So I'm not trying to reduce murder ethically to something less than it actually is. But in the space of what Jesus is saying about the human soul, he's saying murder is a symptom. Murder is not the primary problem that that law was intended to, to address. It is the ultimate revelation that someone doesn't see in another human the sacred image of God. So the way that we can kind of walk that back is to understand that murder has a beginning point that isn't immediately murder. It's the point where the murderer ceases to primarily see another human the way that they were made to see another human. And the root of that is unrighteous anger. Uh, There's a case to be made that anger itself isn't sinful. Uh, We see Jesus get angry at other times. Uh, We hear references in one way or another to righteous and unrighteous anger in the the scriptures. So in the context of uh, the rest of what Jesus will say about anger, if if we broaden at least that much, to the rest of what Jesus seems to show us and teach us about anger, I think it's clear here that he's talking about anger that's either immediately destructive. He's talking about unrighteous anger. So I think that can kind of fall into a couple of categories as I understand it. One is there's an anger that is immediately destructive. That's not righteous anger. That's not from God. You weren't intended to live with that. You're human. It will happen. But you, the goal here is to recognize that that's not who you were made to be. That is the broken part of you. So that's one kind of anger that I think he's speaking about here. And another kind of anger is an anger that you carry around. And as you carry it around, it becomes destructive rather than having any productive quality at all. It's anger that inhibits your ability to love another person and then replaces Um, we'll look at this more closely in a moment, but replaces in you God's image and God's heart. It infringes on that um, because you're carrying it around and it's becoming a part of who you are. So let's look at the the difficult words that we struggle with here are these words about judgment. Um, When he says you'll be liable to judgment, to the council, to the hell of fire, He's not threatening punishment in the way that I think some of us are conditioned to hear as God speaks. If you do this, you will be subject to judgment. I do think that there is um, an eternal reality of judgment. I do think that these kinds of things factor into that. I don't think that's Jesus' primary point here. I don't think he's saying, if you don't do this just right, then you've got something bad. Specifically, you've got something bad coming for you. Uh, in judgment. I think he's specifically saying, I mean, he says, he compares it to murder and says um, that you'll be 
liable to the judgment of the council, potentially, uh, and then the hell of fire. And I'll talk about that phrase in just a minute. But he's saying, if you carry anger, it's going to be your undoing in one way or another. Either it's going to create in you tangible consequences, because a lot of us don't think, I'm never going to get angry enough to break the law and get in trouble. And that that's probably true for most of us. Most of us are probably never going to get arrested uh, for something that anger creates in us. But go read true crime stories, and a lot of them are really sane, normal people like you. My point isn't to make you fear anger such that you're going to become a criminal, right? My point is that Jesus is saying, this is what happens to people when anger pushes them so far that they're no longer part of a, a productive part of society, and they become subject to the judgment of that society. He is saying, if you're not careful, anger can do that in a human. It has done it over and over for the full length of time. So it will either create that kind of tangible consequence for you, um, where you do something that will get you in trouble with the law or, or with other people in some tangible way, or he says it will make you liable to, it will sort of create for you a debt to what he what it just translated here as the hell of fire. The word Jesus actually uses here is Gehenna, which Gehenna was this place outside of Jerusalem where everybody's garbage and refuge refuse got burned. And it was this never-ending burning pile of garbage, essentially. And he says... If you're not careful, if you say you fool, and he's just walking people through sort of tangible ways that anger is going to manifest in them, you will be liable to the hell of fire. You will have this debt to something like the smoldering garbage pit that we're all familiar with. If you carry anger, you will end up constantly chained to an inner spirit that is burning garbage, is essentially what Jesus says here. So I think um, if I could take and sort of reduce it down in my own words, this first part of what he says, I think what he says here is you're free to be angry, um, but, in Jesus, but life in Jesus compels you to leave that behind. Grace, not anger, is going to shape you into the image of God which is a scandalous sort of forgiveness. When the image of God is restored in you, when the image of God is displayed in you, you are forgiving in a way that is confusing to people. It's not forgive, but not forget. It's not niceness, but with a little bit of skepticism or wariness. It's not condescending forgiveness. It is utter giving away your right to be angry and valuing another person the way that God does. And that kind of grace in the place of anger also means this. If in my freedom, I choose to cling to my anger with you for some reason, I might do you harm with my anger. But you're not ultimately dependent on me to stop being angry, to be, to be free from the harm of my anger, unless I'm, physically, if, unless I'm tangibly doing something to torture you or make your life miserable. If I'm just stewing in my anger... Um, that might be hurtful to you for a little while, but you actually have the freedom to seek reconciliation for, with me in a way that frees you from all consequence from my anger. But if I still choose to hold on to it, there's still damaging happening, damage happening. It's just to me that the damage is happening. You have um, 
the freedom to seek reconciliation with me for whatever I have done to make you angry. And at that point, you're free. But if I won't release my anger, I will still be enslaved. Look what he does here with the, the rest of this passage. And this is, for me anyway, as I studied through it, is similar to the twist that, that we talked about in the parable of the Good Samaritan, where we've always seen this as though Jesus is talking from one angle. And it actually, if you look at his words, he's speaking to it from another angle. For, for, this, for these first couple of verses, he's obviously saying, if you have anger here's what it means. But he turns things starting in verse 23. He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that someone else is angry with you, so now he's talking to the person that has someone mad at them, leave your gift before the altar, go be reconciled to them, and then come back and offer. Come to terms quickly with them or it's not going to go well for you. And these are honestly, these are just pragmatic things that happen when someone's so angry with you and you could have created reconciliation, but you didn't. It plays itself out in these very broken ways in the world. You'll never get rid of this until there's actual reconciliation. So Jesus turns the angle from the person who is angry to the person who realizes someone's angry with me. It's an extreme example that he gives because when he talks about, I think it's extreme in two ways. Number one, he's, he's saying, don't even worship until you've made an attempt to reconcile that. But number two, the example he gives is he's talking to a bunch of people in Galilee, which is a three-day walk to the temple. So if you walk for three days to the temple, take the money that you've saved up, buy a sacrifice, and you're about to offer the sacrifice as worship, and you remember that someone's angry with you and you haven't attempted to be reconciled with them, leave the sheep or whatever you've bought. doesn't tell them where to leave it. I don't know if that means they get a refund on the sheep or if there are like boarding houses for sacrifice sheep that you're going to be back in a week for, or I don't know. But he says, leave what you've bought, walk three days back, make that right, then walk three days back again. So this is an extra six days of walking because you didn't make something right before you went the first time. It's an extreme example uh, that he gives, but he says, the burning fires of anger so undermine who we are meant to be that not only should we seek not to be angry with people, but, but the same regard that we're intended to have for the image of God and other people should compel us to do whatever we can to prevent that fire from burning in someone else because of us. He is teaching a regard for one another in a whole new way in this part of the passage. And I think what he says here, I think we can take plainly that we should go to great lengths to seek reconciliation when we've wronged someone or even simply when we know they're angry and we aren't sure whether we've done anything wrong. But as most of us probably know from experience, it's possible to do that, to seek reconciliation with someone who's mad at you and it not work. And they choose not to uh, release that. So... I think even as he talks, he changes the angle and speaks to the people who are sitting in a position of needing to be restored to someone who's angry with them. He's also still talking to the person who is angry. And he's saying, you can carry your anger as long as you choose. But if you choose to continue in anger, no matter how justified you think it is, no matter how much you believe that doing so in some way keeps that person 
you're angry with accountable or gives you some sort of power over them or protection from them, which is often what's going on, what you're actually doing is just condemning yourself to continue harboring a fire inside of you that will smolder and smolder until it consumes you. James talked about anger and what it looks, what it, what it does to us in chapter one. He said, you must understand this, my beloved, let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. We looked at this passage when we talked about being peacemakers. For your anger, James says, other translations say human anger does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. I want to show you a couple of different translations of verse 20 and verse 21. The voice translates verse 20 this way, human anger is a futile exercise that will never produce God's kind of justice in this world. And then the message translates verse 21, paraphrases verse 21. So throw away all spoiled virtue and cancerous evil in the garbage. In simple humility, let our gardener, God, landscape you with the word, making a salvation garden of your life. When you carry anger around, it doesn't produce what we want it to produce, which is ultimate goodness. We sometimes just want our kind of goodness, but we're assuming that, that we have accepted a redeemed view of the world and ourselves, that we ultimately want God's redemption in the world. And our kind of anger doesn't achieve that. What it does do is it cuts you off from God, the gardener, being able to tend you and turn you into who he intends you to be because there is a smoldering fire eating that up at all times. And I think that's a, a sort of distinction that we're given here between righteous and unrighteous anger. When we allow that anger to smolder in us, we're living in the brokenness of refusing the work of God's grace in our lives. The gift of grace from God and Jesus is our ongoing restoration to the image of God. A God who has every right to be angry with people and to hold sin against people, but who forgives. Unmerited forgiveness is what he does instead. That's his way, and that's the image that he is seeking to gently, over time, tend and restore in us. That's what we were made for. So when we won't receive that gift, we ultimately cut ourselves off from wholeness and freedom. This happens in big ways and small ways in our lives. Let me tell you about a small one in my life uh, that I dealt with just a few years ago. And I tell this story as a confession. I, I ultimately feel like I did the right thing in this, but I'm not telling you to make a, a hero out of myself. The righteousness, whatever righteousness I mustered up in this, my kids exceed in very simple ways every single day. And so this was a, this was a moment of me realizing I was a grown man and choosing to act like it, sort of. But uh, the story is this. When I was in seventh grade, the middle of seventh grade, we moved from Longview, Texas, and East Texas to Crane, Texas, and West Texas. Huge change for me. Uh, and shortly after we moved there in seventh grade, there was a kid who started befriending me. His name is Robert. And, um, and he was one of the cooler. He was the quarterback on the football team and one of the cooler kids. And I thought, ah, you know, this, I wasn't really in the cool circle where I came from. And now I'm like immediately being accepted into it. Good news in seventh grade, right? Is there better news in seventh grade <laughs> than that? Um, 
But soon, I mean, within weeks, it became clear that uh, he was going to treat me like a sort of sidekick that he, he um, just made fun of, or we would be walking across the playground to go from uh, third period to fourth period choir, and he would just jump on me and put me in a headlock and, when I wasn't expecting it and hold me on the ground, you know, and then get up and laugh and walk away. And I was like, okay, uh, this is not my person here. Um, <laughs> And that, so we ceased to be friends soon, quickly. And as I, as I grew there and established my own identity and he established his, we sort of, he sort of became my nemesis, sort of became that guy for me that I looked at him out of the corner of my eye, you know, and, and I knew he felt the same about me. We never talked about it unless it was some sort of like just sidebar antagonizing one another, calling each other names or making fun of each other for something. Uh, and it was not good natured when that would happen. But I would hear things that he said to other people about me. I'm confident he heard things I said to other people about him. And we graduated from high school really not liking each other. And I never saw that guy again in my life. Uh, About five or six years ago, he started popping up as a recommended friend for me on Facebook. And I would just ignore it. And, you know, this was before it was easy to, like, get that out of here. I don't want to see that anymore. Uh, So it just kept, he just kept coming up. Uh, And I would find myself, like, Amy sitting next to me when his face would come up. And I would, like, start to turn and tell her what a terrible person he is. And what is that? You know, I'm in my late 30s at this point. And uh, anyway, at some point I realized uh, two things. Um, number one, that there's this little smoldering garbage dump inside of me about Robert still uh, after nearly, uh, nearly 30 years after I met the guy and we sort of got cross with each other. Uh, and number two, I was too proud to admit it, <laughs> uh, that I still had that toward this guy. So here's what I did. I wrote him a message on Facebook. Don't start sending me Facebook messages because I don't respond to him. It was the only way I knew how to get hold of this guy. Um, and I wrote him a message Uh, And here's what I said. Part of what held me back was I didn't know what to say, because what I really wanted to say was, you are a real, uh, but I forgive you, you know? Um, What I said instead was, uh, I was a jerk, and I sort of carried around in my mind and my heart really ugly feelings and thoughts about you. Um, And now every time I see your face pop up, I'm reminded of my own ugliness. Please forgive me. Um... And he wrote me back a, a note that said, gosh, I was the same way. I'm really sorry. Uh, and and there's, there's a little just sort of, sort of simple human story here, you know, of realizing once you become adult, become an adult, most other people have become an adult too. You still like to think of them as the high school kid you didn't like, but he was the same age as me at that point and grown up. There's no Hollywood ending here. Robert's not my best friend. We're not... Uh, really communicating much since then, but it put out a fire in me uh, that was smoldering there. And I think in, this, in some way it did the same for him. And here's what that taught me. It taught me that the law was not enough for me to be who I was supposed to be. I knew better than to stay angry and think ugly thoughts about a guy I hadn't even seen in 20 years for who he was when he was a kid. <laughs> Uh, but I held on to it. Knowledge of the law was not enough to restore that part of my soul to God's intended purpose. It was restored by a kind of grace, a grace that I realized I had received and found a way to extend to him 
It's a kind of grace that I only understand because Jesus has forgiven me when I don't deserve it. And he has fulfilled the law that I already knew, but either couldn't or wouldn't obey. Jesus here doesn't change the truth about murder. He reveals the deeper truth of the brokenness and destructive power of our anger. He now forgives us our anger freely, but the grace that we receive in that forgiveness, um, empowered by Jesus, now shapes us into different kind of people, into the people he intends us to be. We have a choice in big and small ways every day And the hero in any of those stories, when we do the right thing, when we realize the grace we've been given and we extend it in some way, is Jesus who tenderly but firmly continues to say to us, be free of your own smoldering brokenness. Let me reorder your heart and your steps so that my kingdom is alive in you and my kingdom is alive through you. I think the key to this as we sang tonight, this, this just occurred to me. We sang two different songs right before I came up. Josh and I didn't plan this, um, about being a child of God. And I think often our anger uh, is a bit of a test for us as to how much we believe that. When one of my kids is really angry with their sibling or with a friend about something, I can try to logic my way and talk them out of being angry Uh, But what I have found ultimately moves them the most is the reassurance that I'm here, I'm your father, I'm not going to let that person, what that person has done, destroy you. You can trust me that I will keep your brother from destroying you or your sister from destroying you. You're my child and you're safe. And I think for us, often that grip that we get on anger is fear. And sometimes it's justified fear. But it's a moment in which God is whispering to us, you don't have to be afraid, you're my child. You can build your life on my words, on my love, and believe that I will change everything. You're free to be free from your anger. I want us to end by saying a prayer together here. This is, uh, I'll say a bit more about this in 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 a moment or next week. Uh, But this is a resource that I use for Lent uh, called Eastertide. It's just an adapted version of the Liturgy of the Hours for Easter. But this is the prayer for this week of Lent. Um, And I felt like it sort of embodied what uh, we can pray uh, in, in this desire to be changed in this way. So if you will, just pray this out loud with me and then I'm done. O God, the strength of all who put their trust in you, mercifully accept my prayers. And because in my weakness I can do nothing good without you, give me the help of your grace that in keeping your commandments I may please you in both will and deed. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. All right, I'm going to show you the questions for this week. And Michelle, if you want to go ahead and come up, we're going to, after I finish this, tell you a little bit about the Stations of the Cross uh, that these folks put up downtown and that we'll have here with us through the Lenten season on Sundays and give you a chance to participate in that. Questions this week are this. Is there anyone who is angry with me with whom I haven't sought reconciliation? 
Am I praying for the people with whom I'm not reconciled? Am I carrying anger towards anyone? If so, is that anger moving me or them towards something good? Or is it primarily damaging me or them? If I allow Jesus to touch my anger, what do I think he will do with it? And then the last question, sorry for those of you who take a picture of this, it wouldn't all fit on the screen without making that small. Think of a time you've seen someone embrace the way of Jesus in this area, seeking reconciliation or releasing anger, and make a point of thanking them for showing you how grace makes us who God intends for us to be. I think part of our discipleship into different people is just being affirmed that that was worth it. <laughs> it may feel like you lost something in that, but I saw it and it, and it matters and it was worth it.